0: Hello, and welcome to the ZMM podcast. You know, we talk a lot about the mind here and how it works in the context of perception, concentration, grasping, aversion. And did I really offend that person I was speaking with yesterday when I correctly guessed they were an only child based on their table manners? Was I supposed to apologize after that? Should I really be spending time on the cushion thinking about this? Maybe, probably not. In short, why do we think what we do? or perceive a situation in a certain way and then why all the obsessing about how the other person perceived it or maybe that's just me and really what is the difference between the mind or consciousness and the brain and where does it all come from well some of these questions are best put to a Zen teacher and some are better for a neuroscientist but what if you could speak with both of them or even better perhaps to eavesdrop in and hear what they would have to say in conversation with each other well that's what today's podcast is all about. What we've got on the turntable for you is a recording of a conversation that recently took place in the monastery's Sangha house with residents and a few retreatants who happened to be A, vaccinated, and B, in the right place at the right time. Shugan Arnold Roshi, abbot of the monastery, spoke with Dr. Philip Ninen, a Sangha member and I'll just say uh, a brain expert. Who first came to zmm in 2012 and returned for another month of residency in august 2021 when this nearly impromptu conversation took place uh, before we begin a few more words about philip philip Ninen describes himself as a wanderer a student of the mind entering from the perspectives of neuroscience his interest in zen came out of a desire to gain experiential knowledge of areas he had already devoted many years to studying in the lab Plus, it didn't hurt that he was a fan of Leonard Cohen. For over two decades of his career, Philip was Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Emory University School of Medicine, where he also served as Director of the Mood and Anxiety Disorders Program. There his research focused on the neurobiology and treatment of anxiety and depressive disorders. Later, he worked for six years in the pharmaceutical industry as Vice President in Neuroscience at Pfizer. We hope you enjoy the conversation and that it gives you lots to think about, perceive, and reflect on. If you're listening through the podcast feed, check out the show page for a link to a TEDx talk that Philip gave on related themes and links to more great conversations and Dharma talks from our archives. Now, let's get started. Here's Roshi.
1: So, um, I wanted to first of all thank Philip for being game. (laughs) Um, I sat down the other morning and I said, I have a proposal. <laughs> um, so, uh, we wanted to do just a brief sort of introduction and get this going, but a little bit of backstory. So, Philip and I, Philip is in residence here. And so, we've had a number of very interesting conversations. At the end of last week, I was walking back to the embassy and I thought it would be really nice if everyone could be listening or be part of that conversation. And so, I thought we would do that. When somebody asked the Buddha, what is the world, the Buddha said, it's your eyes, it's your ears, it's your nose, it's your tongue, it's your skin, it's your mind. In other words, that the only world we know is the world that we experience. And in Buddhism, it's not so much a matter of trying to see what is the objective reality, because we can't, right? But rather, what is the reality we're experiencing, and when that becomes more and more clear, Less and less tainted, then we're experiencing things more, more clear, more freely, and freed from all of those underlying dispositions, which means now we're in a more clear and open and, and unburdened um, experience of it, okay, which is the, the alleviation of our suffering. Okay? So So, from a Buddhist perspective, so these are insights that the Buddha um, largely had 2,500 years ago plus, and then have been continued to be developed. So, like in every discipline, you know, where there's the beginning of some inquiry or some uh, development of some body of knowledge, and then human nature is, well, let's take that further. Right? Where does that go? Let's develop that. What are the implications of that? Buddhism has done the same thing in a sense, while always trying to maintain true, remain true to the essential teachings and the essential experience that comes out of Buddhist practice. And so, so when other disciplines come to insights or discoveries or conclusions that, that are using the instruments of that discipline, And that are echoing or supporting or affirming what Buddhism teaches, that's kind of cool, right? (laughs) Because there's a sort of a supporting affirmation of what Buddhism requires us to go, in a sense, beyond our instruments, beyond our capacity to measure and rationalize and explain. Right? That's why it's a, it's a practice-based tradition, that's why it's based in a mystic path. But then when that, when that is sort of looked at alongside other traditions that are very much look, looking at those similar questions in terms of what can be measured, what can be understood, what can be explained, and we see the parallels, that's mutually affirming, you know, and it can be strengthening, um, particularly for some people who may for whom faith in what cannot be measured may come with difficulties. Sometimes having seen that affirmation from science can be very supportive. So you gave a TED talk. <laughs> and um, uh-huh. and so I asked if Philip would just sort of briefly summarize some of the main points of that. And then I had some questions that I wanted to, okay. to bring to you as well. And then well, before we just open it up and have a discussion.
2: Shugan just gave you a neuroscience lecture. <laughs> uh, because you can The concepts, which is, to me, absolutely amazing, that this Buddha sitting 2,500 years ago, internal in the space in his mind, he's internal to the system, he's not outside the system looking at it, figured this thing out, and it's taken 2,500 years of civilization to be able to support Mm -hmm. to incredible degree what he experienced and has talked about. So to start out with, um, we'll use terms that are the same like consciousness but there are slightly different meanings to it. So I'll try and explain some of those kind of um, differences. Uh, because it's important to to understand that uh, uh, language is a barrier here. Um, So, essentially, the brain is an organ that was developed to be able to coordinate the activity of other organs. So it's a central coordinating system. Um, Once it did that, Then it says, what else can I do? (laughs) And it started saying that, you know, there are some advantages in being able to uh, do better predictions, uh, to be able to uh, make choices rather than the choices being deterministic. which is purely reflexive, so you don't have a choice in that response, and so it started out. And there were many systems that came to this this block. The immune system, for example, you know, is is one of the other really elaborate systems in our brain, in our in our body, but it never broke through to the level that the brain was able to do. And what did the brain basically do? Um, it figured out how to make a simulation machine in the brain (laughs) so that you can simulate things that have never happened that allows you to be able to make choices about the future. It allows you to be able to run things that happened in the past as current memories that you are recalling, which are basically simulations okay and the capacity to make these simulations allowed you to be able to make choices that made us the big guys on in terms of the species on on earth i mean we are a relatively puny species compared to so many others <laughs> but this capacity is unique to us so we essentially have a problem because we now have two minds one mind is what came along all through evolution that is basically what we would call bottom up processing that doesn't allow you to be able to have choices and then the second one is this latest iteration that is unique to our species that allow us to be able to have these incredible new capacities that no other species on earth has so let me walk you through what these two minds are doing and the, the systems that underlie them in the brain. So the first point is that we really don't know anything of what's going on in reality. We take our senses and we get information from, those, from our senses and some of them are direct, like smell, for example. Others are much more elaborate. So we are our most dominant system is the visual system. So I'll focus on that. So what the eye does is it takes in light energy, converts that through chemical reactions into a photograph that is on our retina. And then there's a huge elaborate process that goes on that allows us to be able to perceive that photograph. So there is a very active process of the picture that is a map of reality. And then that map has to be converted into a perception. So what we are really seeing is not reality, We are seeing a map of reality. Who said that before? (laughs) Okay. And what our mind
1: does... Can I ask you a question? I'm like just sitting on my tongue here. (laughs) Um, So um, I've already shelved like 10 questions. So is, is that moment of perception different from the moment where there's cognition. Yes, so you can try and track this in terms
2: of time. So how long does, so I I distinguish, you know, the word cognition has different, is used in different contexts and has different meanings. So let me say thinking. How long does it take for me to see something and then have a thought about it. We think that based on the complexity of it, it's somewhere around a quarter to a one third to one half of a second. Now, when you look at the brain, the level at the molecular level where a single calcium atom goes into a channel, on the cell surface of a cell, of a neuron, is happening at one billionth of a second. The level at which it crosses a synapse, so the information is going from um, you know, external information like light energy is converted to a chemical energy and then an electrical energy, and then it has to go, go to the next synapse and become a chemical transmission and then become an electrical one again and things like that. It takes about one microsecond for it to jump that synapse. So that's one millionth of a second, okay? Um, and so if something comes at your eye, it happened actually day before yesterday, came at my eye and I blinked before I realized I blinked or why I had blinked. There are three synapses that go into that blink response. It takes 25 milliseconds. That's 25 thousands of a second for the blink response. Okay. So a thought is happening 350 milliseconds to 500 milliseconds later on. So, the triggering of that thought happened eons ago. And uh, because of the resolution of our thought is so poorly, poor granularity, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's like watching a black and white TV, okay? You really can't make out the difference. So within the period of the thought, there's so much that has happened in the brain that if this triggers a, re- a response, an idea, anger, aggression, whatever, we have the capacity within the period of the thought to post hoc rationalize why we are thinking this and saying, I'm really choosing to think this, baloney,
1: <laughs>
2: okay? So, so if you follow that sequence, so what happens is the information from the um, uh, eyeball, the retina is broken down in a series of centers in, in, the, in, the, in the visual cortex. And they're all their basic, you know, one's job is to say, This line is vertical. The other one says it's horizontal. This one says this is the color. You know, one of these three primary colors and the combination you get, you you, you get potentially millions of colors that can be perceived. The texture, motion, all of that stuff is, is, is broken down into different pieces. And then it's sent through different streams of pathways. One stream says, where is this occurring in relationship to my body? So it takes in other information of the map of the body and finds, you know, and says, this is where this is happening. The other stream goes into what is this? And based on the complexity of the object, it takes more time if it's more complex, it's very simple, then it takes shorter period of time but it's around 120 milliseconds that that object identification is happening. Meanwhile, there's also a fast track that goes straight into our emotional centers. And it takes low level information that doesn't have to be processed very much and sends it straight to our emotional centers. And there are two centers here that are involved. And basically they have to say, we have this pattern. Is anything coming in that fits this pattern? If it doesn't, it doesn't exist in the theater of my mind of of emotions.
1: You mean it's actually just discarded or? or Yeah,
2: it it doesn't pay attention to it. It doesn't
1: come into into perception.
2: Well, I mean, there's no emotional response Mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. Um, So the two systems that survive through evolution, one is threat, you need to survive. And the second is you need to survive long enough to procreate so that the species can survive. So one is threat, the other is reward or pleasure. So the threat system basically says, am I threatened? In which case, if that pattern matches that preordained pattern, and the preordained pattern can be partly genetic, it can also be sculpted by early life experiences. So, as a human species, we have the longest period of development than anything else. You know, it takes two decades for us to become independent.
1: And it's getting longer, I
2: think. And it's getting longer. <laughs> and actually, all of the development hasn't occurred. The final long pathways that allow you to be able to have high-level abstraction, high-level integration, actually happens towards the end of the third, you know, the third decade. So, in your late twenties. Uh, which is why adolescents are such a pain to be around. <laughs> um, so uh, the the threats, if the threat pattern is is triggered, then there's a whole you know as a, as an individual we don't have to figure out all these different things because the species has said this is a value. There's no point in each individual having to learn this. So there's a program that then, then get triggered, and so your heart beats faster, you know. The whole stress response, hormones, immune systems, you know, blood flow. There's less to the skin, so you don't get, so you don't breathe if you get cut. Um, you breathe faster. you you know, and a, a whole package of things that that can happen. That you know, if you feel anxious and have a panic attack, that's what's been triggered. Um, anxiety, anxiety is the internal internalization of that response. If you externalize this, that's one form of anger. Um, And uh, and that that makes you more impulsive, that makes you more aggressive um, because you're defending yourself and those who are important to you. If you sustain the threat for very long, the, the response runs out of steam. And so what you have is, you have the equivalent of what happens when you have a loss, which is sadness and depression. So those are coming out of the threat system. The other one is reward, where you get pleasure. And if the pattern fits the pleasure response, then you experience positive emotions, which means that you are now expansive you are reaching out to people, you're approaching novel situations, and you're exuberant, and you're the life of the party. Um, And uh, everybody thinks that you're funny and and having a great time. Of course, both of these systems can also be simultaneously triggered and things like that, but um, there's also one aspect of the reward system that I want to mention, because you also start expecting these things because actually our brain is a predicting machine. So if you expect that you're gonna get reward, and you're frustrated because the reward doesn't happen, then you also get angry. Mm -hmm. And so there are two pathways, hypothetically, that you could get angry uh, through both of these different pathways. And we are trying to distinguish those from a neuroscience kind of standpoint so those are the basis of the triggers of emotion but how do you experience the emotion so if i had to use an analogy in the old days when you went to see a movie you had a screen and you had a projector that projected onto the screen now of course we do the all that in one tv thing but this is an easy analogy to explain so Think of the anger that has been triggered by the threat response system or the reward system, the pleasure, as being what is projected. You need a screen to see. Otherwise, you know, if you do, if you just you'll just see dust particles in the light that is being projected. So, who forms the? How does the fo- screen get formed? The screen is formed by messages from our body that get mapped into our brain. So this is why emotions are so tied to our physicality, our body, because the body representation is the fabric on which we experience emotions. And what's interesting about the messages coming in through that system, through the vagus nerve, which if you read my grandmother's hand, he calls it the sole nerve. It's an incredible uh, creative name for, for, for the vagus nerve. Um, and we study the vagus nerve. In fact, we one of the treatments that I was involved in testing and, and getting approved through the FDA was stimulating the vagus nerve on the left side. We would implant a device that would actually uh, stimulate the vagus nerve for people where all the other treatments of depression didn't work. The vagus nerve is an interesting nerve. The fibers in the nerve don't have a covering sheath for the nerve. That's called a myelin. myelinated. So these are unmyelinated fibers. Most of the other information that's coming in are myelinated. And what is the advantage of myelination? It's like if you have a wire that is insulated. Nothing else can go through that. No other information can go through that wire that allows you to be able to have point-to-point discrimination. So if I get a pinprick, I know exactly where that pinprick is down to, you know, a, a micrometer because it's point-to-point going through the myelinated fibers. If it's an unmyelinated fiber, it's an interstate highway where there is no difference between one car and another. It's a flowing of information. Mm-hmm. And so the messages coming from your body that form the fabric of your emotions is non-discriminative. You have the sense that there's something wrong with your stomach, but you don't know where it is, um, or some other visceral system that is sending an abnormal message, and it kind of gets all messed up. And all you know is that there is turbulence in this river of information that is flowing up. And that forms the fabric on which the emotions, emotional system, the threat and the reward system are projected.
1: Make sense? Can I ask two questions? And <laughs> I know there are going to be other questions. Um, going back to um, if, if we experience something that we, that there's no prior pattern for no prior sort of precedent for that we don't is it because the buddha said that we we when we experience something we experience it either in the plain pain realm pleasure realm or neutral so oh, say we, it again. or neutral uh uh-huh. so but there's still a, an experience there's still a sensation mm-hmm. so is that analogous? yeah there's a sensation but it hasn't triggered an emotion. Okay, so then the teachings also say that when something arises and becomes, um, so so something happens and I have an emotional response, that the moment that that arises, that emotion arises, it's unasked for, right? It's not a conscious choice. That's right. And from a Because you
2: can't go backwards in time
1: to make a choice. Right. From a Buddhist perspective, that emotion doesn't carry karma. It is not creating karma yet because there's no intention, no choice. But in the moment that I become aware of it, and then I begin to think, you know, or react or respond or build on, then I'm creating karma. And so that moment of of arising is considered a pivot moment. Yes. Where I'm either strengthening that pathway or I'm, or I'm. Diminishing it or creating a new one or dissolving
2: it. That is an incredibly important point because we all have biases. And these biases are triggering a response before we are consciously aware of the trigger or the response. The choice we are making is do I disagree with this response? Or do I agree with it and enhance it? Or do I disagree and I try to inhibit it?
1: Yeah. Then the other thing is, um, I wanted to read from something you said in the, in the talk where you talked about the negative and I mean the uh, sort of painful and the pleasurable. And you said, um, uh, emotions are framed by these somatic or body maps, which include these visceral sensations from our gut and chemical messages. These give our emotions ownership, what we call agency. Because what's important here, I think, for as practitioners is where this sense of self, right, I am, arises. Um, we are the agent experiencing them, giving us grounding, providing a stable context, a frame of referent embodiment, our personhood. And from the Buddhist perspective, those of you who are familiar with the two truths, conventional truth and relative An ultimate truth, that the sense of self is is something that we experience within relative truth, and in that it has a role. Right, it has a role in terms of helping to create our sense of person and place and stability and you know location and all of that, and also feelings and thoughts. Um, the foundation of our multi multi multidimensional sensory self, because our body is framing emotions. If our body is sick, that's a threat. We're more likely to experience negative emotions, which I found very interesting. So I've always thought that when you're sick, that's an excellent time to really try and practice metta. You know, really to open, see if you can open up when you're not feeling good, when I'm not feeling good, and actually to open up and do practices that are generating compassion for others, because it's harder. Right when we don't feel well. But now this is the really interesting thing. You said, with repeated triggering, negative emotions become sensitized and grow. Sound familiar? Thus, the swelling impact of trauma, particularly from abuse and neglect early in life, repetition of positive experiences, on the other hand, are desensitized. For pleasure, we need novelty. If they're unexpected, the joys multiply. So the question always arises, why are we drawn towards the negative? Why is it so much easier? Right. Shanti Davis says, I want to free myself of suffering, but I go back again and again to the causes of my suffering, like a magnet. Right. And that that sense that that builds on itself in a sense. But we can also become desensitive to negative experiences, right?
2: Yeah, you can you can dissociate from it.
1: So that's considered more of a dissociation, whereas when it, when we're, because I was thinking of the positive experiences, like when you're eating a meal and you take the first bite and it's full of flavor and then the next bite and the next bite and the next bite. So you take a bite of the, the other thing on your plate. Right. Novelty. But so I, we were talking earlier and I said, I always think about this from the point of view of evolution. How is that helping us? Right. So, and you talked about it in terms of threat and survival. But as we evolve, wouldn't it be nice <laughs> if it sort yeah. of shifted the other way?
2: Well, the ones who didn't learn from trauma were less likely to survive. Yeah. And so you selected the ones who, uh, who continued to have a response to the trauma. So, so that's
1: more important from a survival point of view than having yeah, pleasurable experience. Yeah,
2: I mean we, we, we are design you know, we are designed in really very odd ways by <laughs> geological events that had nothing to do with our mental choices. <laughs> you know, um, if we, we we are poorly designed to be where we are today. Mm. Uh, the choices were made much longer, so so quite some time ago. So, uh, you know, I was taking a hike a couple of years ago and walking on the banks of a river, and it was a beautiful river. It was a smooth flow, and I think of the language of emotions as flow, and the dynamics is really flow dynamics that you would see with water or gases and things like that. And then there was a rock right in the middle of that river. And what did, what happened to the flow around it? It became turbulent. There were eddies and backflows and, you know, just a lot of confusion around that. So if you think of a trauma as that rock, everything else is flowing smoothly, but that rock is there. And so it causes turbulence. Mm-hmm. And over a period of time, I guess the rock collects other debris, (laughs) and so you you get more sensitized. And and so the rock is essentially the nature of the memory imprint of that trauma. And um, if you want to get into that later on, we can talk about how those memories are really not solid rocks. They're essentially... Liquid that has become you know consolidated into ice. And therefore, there are techniques that are being people are trying to develop. And in psychotherapy, what happens is if you revisit a traumatic memory, you know, that memory has been consolidated, but it's it's now think of it as an ice. And the ice is encased in the bowl. The shape of the ice is the bowl in which it, it is encased, which is the context and the experience of, of where the trauma happened. You know, if the trauma happened in a room that had, say, brown curtains and every time one sees a brown curtain, you, the context is going to trigger the likelihood that, that memory will come back. So there's a content and a context. So there are two different systems that are involved in that. So the consolidation that is the production of new proteins that forms that, that ice is over a period of like 24 hours. And when you go back, so most of the time when we are traumatized, we are actually not reliving the trauma. We are running simulations of it in our memory rather than actually experiencing the trauma. And when you run the simulations, it doesn't do any good. But in, I've had patients in psychotherapy where they came in and had a session, for whatever reason, was intense, cathartic, you know, everything kind of burst open. And then the next week they'd come back and say, you know, that trauma doesn't seem to have any more impact on me. I'm free of that, the baggage from that trauma. So how do we explain that? Well, when you revisit a trauma in its full intensity, it actually becomes labile. It's melted again. And now it has to consolidate. And the consolidation that happens is in the context of the new bowl that that water is in now. And if it's in the nature of a therapeutic relationship that is safe or within whatever the parameters are, that ice is now not that much of an issue anymore.
1: You're changing the conditions in which the experience is occurring. Causes and conditions.
2: Unreliable to begin with? I'm sorry? Isn't that memory unreliable to begin with? Um, Recalling of the memory is unreliable because the memory is not really a videotape of the memory. It's too broken down into different component parts. And as you run recalling of it in simulations and things like that, you add components of it. You might embellish it. You might... Diminish some aspects of it because it was unacceptable to you because you feel like you were responsible for that aspect of it, uh, and so it gets altered around you know the edges along those kind of things, um, and so uh, the unreliability is mainly in the sense of reporting it. Um, so it's in these cases where um, you know you know witness identification that kind of stuff. Where the biases are coming in, and their perception has been pre-programmed to go in a particular direction, Um, and and so so that's the that's the basis of the uh, the unreliability.
1: Jen? sorry. Oh,
2: okay. I'm sorry.
1: Can we come back? Okay.
2: Well,
3: Genko, Gen- Genko. Uh, Well, I actually have two questions. And one uh, follows what Shugan just asked about our negative experiences, that we are more sensitized there versus the pleasure, what you said in your TED Talk. Couldn't that be also, you mentioned earlier, that your our brain functions in the context of our body, and it's simply a question of energy. When you have negative experiences, your body uses much more energy, so it has to be much more cautious. In terms of various pleasure, well, you may need some energy, depending on what kind of energy, but could that be an explanation that you have to see your brain in the context of your body?
2: Uh, that, that would clearly be a contribution so none of these things are complete explanations. Uh-huh. There are many variables that go into it. So we're just g- giving one explanation more as a storyline. Uh, uh-huh. Clearly the issue is, you know, the, the, the brain is the most complicated structure in the known universe
3: <laughs> And my other question was before that, you talked about emotions mm-hmm. and the fear emotion, you know, the, the fear in the other one.
2: Anger and sadness. Yeah.
3: Uh, but the, I listened to a, a talk by um, Lisa Feldman Bennett and she talked about that emotions are simulations and that these simulations depend on the context so that fear hasn't always the same response. Uh, She talked about, I I didn't uh, test it, but that we fear in the Western world, we go often by freezing and that's what we assume, but she said in other cultures, people fall asleep. And so that our emotional simulations are uh, a function of the culture. Uh, yeah. and, and, and it's not just a biological response. And that was what I was wondering.
2: Um, I think all of these are modified. So th- there are hierarchies. Uh-huh. So you start from, you know, molecular level, DNA, to cell, to circuits, you know, to organ systems, to an individual, to culture, society, culture, and economics. <laughs> yeah. So, so that at each of these levels, because it comes to a point that you were raising, you know, when does the self come? So, there's what we would call a proto-self, a very early version of the self that starts at the lowest level, but At each, as you move up the hierarchy in terms of time and processing of information, and the information is processed in different ways at different levels, um, you're getting more and more of a complex sense of self. Um, So what is the atom of awareness that is the basis of, you know, the the duality that is inherent in in all of us, this was an insight that I had recently, which is why it it troubled me and that's why I ended up coming back, Mm -hmm. um, was that, so all of this, I've been using the word information. And so let me just back up and say, there's a huge amount of information, there's a a huge amount of knowledge that has come in that's termed under information theory. And part of that came out of uh, the digital world that has now been, Uh, Created and it came out of communication. Um, And this guy in 1948 named Claude Shannon came up with a single paper that just blew everybody's mind. That is, and he's the father of information theory. Um, And it comes to a point that uh, Shugan had made, which is that when you, information is pure data, by the way, information is defined as reducing uncertainty. That means there are a huge number of choices and you've reduced it down to a few ones, okay? And if you look at that in terms of basic physics, it is actually increase. it is reducing disorder. And so the word entropy comes in. And so that connects you to the, 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 the laws of thermodynamics and physics at that basic level. Um, but information is just, pure data, it has no meaning to it. And the issue is how do you get this information from this area to that area in as valid a manner as possible with as great fidelity and no errors, okay? And then the person who's given the information, who started the information has additional knowledge that adds meaning. And when the information gets over here, the person receiving it has meaning adds meaning to it, and so we think in the lay sense that information has meaning. Mm -hmm. Actually, the two can be dissociated. Mm -hmm. So what happens when you do zazen?
1: Think about that, right? That the meaning, the information, the data, the experience is not the same as the meaning, right? That's exactly the point that zazen is bringing as to before the mind, adds meaning. Because at the moment it becomes meaningful, yeah. the impact, the significance, and the identification.
2: That's right. And the storyline that you've cooked up.
1: Right. So. <laughs> and so I know I want to get back to Daniel, but his question, but the, the, the sense, this just the sense of self. So there's self-awareness. Right. There's a sense of pro-preception.
2: Pro-preception, pro-pre-ception yeah.
1: So there's sense of locating myself in this body but then there's it seems like a higher level of self which is where i identify myself with or as which seems like something more right more sophisticated more elaborate
2: that's right so because we have this capacity to be able to send magnetic messages to shut down parts of the brain <laughs> um, right now it's only on the surface there are these people who've done experiments where they'll shut down the part of the brain that gives you your body map and people will have you know and they'll shock them or do something that'll be unpleasant um, and they won't be distressed by it
1: they, what, feel, what do they, it.
2: Huh? they feel it they'll feel it but they'll say, "Yeah, I feel pain somewhere in the room. It's not mine. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not troubled by it."
1: How about that? That's far out. I didn't um, make the song. Yeah. Uh, Philip, my question is regarding what your your metaphor of the stone. That you saw on the river and the flow and ice brain, um, how does that correlate to TBI and CTE?
2: How does that correlate with
1: traumatic brain injury and chronic traumatic okay. encephalitis?
2: Yeah. So the problem with the traumatic brain injury that happens if you have in an automobile accident, for example, is what they call a coup or a contra coup because you're you you're going and then you you so the brain is encased in fluid and it's kind of hanging in there between you know one um what do you call it trampoline no that's not the word what what do you lie down on a hammock Mm -hmm. um, and then another hammock so when you go fast and you hit the front of your brain hits the frontal you know skull and the back you know then you know, you gotta so, so that's the kind of traumatic brain injury, or if it's a lateral, then it'll be the lateral ones and all that. The traumatic brain injury that's come out of the veterans out of the Iraqi Afghanistan theater is different. So it's a shock wave. And the shock wave, what it does is the brain has these different layers of you know tissue. Uh, neurons, white matter fibers, and then cortical layers and things like that. So the the concussion that happens there causes a tear between these layers. And so you're basically disconnecting one of the most connected systems Mm. in the brain. And so now what happens is you have local systems that don't have overall control. And so you get these, and so um, none of the treatments that we know can address that, because that brain is damaged in a uniquely different way than we've ever seen before, and it's horrible. It is. Sorry. Well, thank you. I didn't even get to thinking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, please do. We have some people who want to know about that because you, you have a solution. <laughs> He's figured it out. <laughs> um, so, perfect so be, Zazen. Huh? Perfect Zazen. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I'll tell you. You know, I mean, this is, Zazen is incredible. It it just is. I mean, uh, it's damn hard to do. (laughs) You know, Uh, I was never good at following instructions. Uh, And these are simple ones. Anyway, so we move from perception to emotions, and then it goes up to thinking. So if emotions are fluid, flowing, thinking is solid ground. It's concrete and it's based on a set of cells that are called place cells that give you location. So it maps a geographical location and that becomes the framework of of the template on which your thoughts and your memories and all of those, it's like a skeleton tree on which the branches can grow leaves and things like that, and I was thinking about this because there are people who have phenomenal memory, and you can be trained to have phenomenal memory. They use what is called a memory palace, which is they imagine a palace, and as you walk through, and each bit of information comes in, you place that information in this, in the mailbox over here, on the doorbell over there, through the door. And so you have, and then what you want, if you want to recall that whole sequence of memories, you walk the same path and pick up each memory that happens. That is what Ananda did. (laughs) That is how he had this incredible memory. And for those of you interested in, there's a book called Moonshine, over Einstein or something? Moonwalking over Einstein, you know, tells you how this person, this journalist, um, went to this competition of this memory competition and they, and, and they said, you know, we can train you to do this. Mm-hmm. And in three years, he won the memory competition. I mean, it basically, I mean, he, he he got trained to do that. The issue is, and the memory is there, but there's no understanding of the meaning of that information all you're doing is placing and that's why ananda took so long for him to, because he, he knew all the words but they didn't have the the meaning associated with it anyway so the thinking is is basically algorithmic using particular areas there's a broker's area and things like that but this is bottom up so the thinking is really not independent it's driven by what's already happened before Uh, So if you are, if you just had, you know, if I just had a fight with with my wife, then the half-life of an emotion is many hours. The half-life of thought is like a second or two, (laughs) okay? So if I come back, you know, come back from work and I'm stressed out, the emotion is still remaining. And I'll come home and Sarah will say something and I'll snap at her. That's collateral damage because it's the emotions that have overflown
1: into my thinking and because the thought is not is has, has already expired That's there's right. not awareness necessarily
2: That's right. That's right yes I'm still I'm still aroused by the threat, mm-hmm. by the anger I felt with that patient who refused to take the medicine that had fixed her before. And, you know, and I'm saying, God, how stupid can people be? Um, and I come home and Sarah gets the collateral damage, and and I then have to bear the consequences for a week afterwards, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> so how do we actually have this capacity to think independently without being captive to this bottom of processing? And that's where the simulation system comes in. So the simulation system is based on the cortical thing, which is essentially a network. All the processing from information, from, emo- from perception to emotions was circuit based. A circuit is a road that gets you from point A to point B and come back to point A. So that's a circuit. A network is a city that connects all the points in the city with multiple roads so that you can go through different paths to be able to get to to those roads. And so that is basically graph theory. Graph theory basically says there are nodes and there are connections between nodes. They call those edges. Um, If you have many nodes, but very few connections, the system is very unstable. And so transitions are very dramatic and explosive. If you have a lot of nodes and a lot of connections, then the system is actually very stable.
1: And can you, can you actually increase the connections by how, um, how you live? So that's where the long f- fiber
2: tracks coming in allow you to be able to do that. So till during adolescence, all the circuits, all, all the networks are local. Which is why they can't connect one body of information with another body of information. You know, they're living in this particular set network, and then they're moving to another network, and what they've learned from here can't be transferred to the other because it's not connected as a larger network. The long fibers that allow you to be able to connect all of these different networks are again wired actually only when in, in you're by your late twenties. And that's when you suddenly are able to see the full picture. Um, And there are gender differences and things like that. Um, But-
1: It happens later for men.
2: Yeah, it happens later for for men. And for all of you adolescent boys who were creamed out by girls that you had no idea what the hell you had done uh, because you're totally clueless, they wired themselves better early on.
1: Adolescent (laughs) boys?
2: Uh, So the network is analogous to, and I don't know whether this is, you know, how true this analogy is, is essentially the diamond net of Indra. Mm. Because the network allows you to be able to have information in one area immediately available to the information in the other parts of the network. And so think of the internet as a network. And now what you have is hubs. So Facebook is a hub. And so there's a lot of information that goes within that network. You know, Google might be considered another hub or whatever. Now, there are two hubs in the network of our cortex. There's an anterior one that allows us, that pulls together all these different levels of information of the self and gives us this full story of the ego. And has this continuity that, you know, the moment you wake up, it's there. The back part of the brain has a network that essentially is a simulation device. And so the self plays in the simulation. And so it runs the past memories as simulations. It runs potential future scenarios as simulations so that you can make strategic decisions, say, this is what I want to achieve. It's gonna take me so many years, but once you've made that decision, then all you need to do is make tactical decisions. You know, I want to become a monk, it's a mountain monastery. Once that decision is made, then the path is is much more clarified kind of thing. this capacity, and it also can run what is called augmented reality, which is while you're in the here and now of this first part of the mind that I talked about, you can enhance that, you can boost that by running simulations, okay, um, and um, and 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 do that. So what uh, what Zazen is trying to tell you to do is. Shut that damn simulation down.
1: <laughs> Can I, I wanted to, because in this other article, one of the articles you sent me, it talks about interoception. Uh-huh. And I wanted to sort of connect with what, something you're So reading from this article, interoception includes all the signals from your internal organs, including your cardiovascular system, lungs, gut, bladder, mm-hmm. kidneys. There's a constant dialogue between the brain and the viscera vis-a-vis this vagus, Nerve system. Um, Then it goes on to say um, much of the processing of these signals takes place below conscious awareness. You won't be aware of the automatic feedback between brain and body, that helps to keep all the automatic systems going, but many of these sensations, such as tension in your muscles, clenching of stomach, beating of your heart, should be available to the conscious mind. So I was thinking of this in terms of what you were talking about in terms of thoughts. So thoughts we think of as being this very sophisticated level you know of our functioning, but in a way that's kind of a the theater you know? that really the sophistication in a sense is what's happening below. and particularly in terms of its effect on us and how yes. that is really sort of driving. And so to think then in terms of zaza, I was saying I've thought so often that you know just from a Buddhist perspective, that when we look more and more carefully at how, Buddhism understands human mind and nature. In a way Zazen becomes the only logical thing. You know, how else? And so I was thinking of how then in relation to what you're saying that in calming the thoughts, which we often think of as sort of the the bulk of climbing the mountain. You know, if I could just quiet my mind that I'm that I'm basically there. And actually that's not true. Calming the mind is the easiest part. I mean calming the thoughts is the easiest part. And mind, going back to definitions in Buddhism, you know the Chinese character for mind is mind-body or mind-heart. And so it's really understood as non-dual that it's the whole mm-hmm. system, the whole being. And that in, in quieting the thoughts, in a sense that's the initial, well, that's not quite accurate, but it's, it's sort of a necessary stage to be able to make more direct contact with what's really driving the ship. and and that step
2: might be in what is called the autonomic nervous system, which is the automatic non-volitional system. And there are two components to it. One is the sympathetic, which is when you get activated, and the other is the parasympathetic, which is the more relaxed one. And what happens when you are starting to settle in is, your parasympathetic system is now being more active and your sympathetic system is getting quieter and getting out of the way and that then releases all these other things that can happen because you were busy being
1: entertained by your thoughts exactly it allows us to come into contact with the the rest of the body and mind That's right. Right, so mindfulness and concentration, and letting and, and calming the distracted mind. You know, the analogy that's often used is just dust, or you know, it's like running through a pond, and the water itself is clear, but it stirs up the dust, and so it's very hard to see mm-hmm. to any depth. And so, because the the glaciers are emotional based, you know, thoughts are sort of just the the sort of the final form but it's really the emotive quality of the clashes that traps us and that is our it causes us to to move into those reactions which then become solidified through repetition and then becomes identified with and it becomes this almost sealed system where we don't see it happening we don't know it's happening it just seems to be the objective world and so and so being in contact you know, when we talk about just Zazen and being, you know, being aware of what's happening moment to moment. right? So when people think it's just letting go of thoughts, then they can really effectively be, be blocking out everything else, including thoughts, you know, just, just cutting them away and not actually even seeing the nature of the thoughts, which means we're not gaining insight into those patterns because those do are telling a certain story. But then ultimately to get deeper than that, so that that whole miracle that we are carrying, that we are, actually begins to open up. So, um, so that we're actually, because one of the experiments is can you, you know, get quiet and, and count your heartbeats? In other words, how in contact can we be with just our, our being? And that it's that contact, and going back to how do we, how do we not just calm the clashes, but actually sort of pass through them and resolve those knots. That's a, a metaphor that's often used. That these are knots that have been tied and tighter and tighter and tighter, and they have to be untied. And you can't do that with aggression. If you've ever tried to untie a knot and you get frustrated with it, what, te- what, what tends to happen is you. <clears throat> And now you're really screwed, right? And so it's and that's where it feels counterintuitive, right? It's like th- right. the thing we should do is is beat it into um, peacefulness. <laughs> 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 but just to underline how important uh-huh. it is in Zazen that it is an embodied experience, but at the same time it's not fixating on the body. It's not attaching, it's not dwelling in the body, because that's just another point of identification or attachment. And so it's it's how to hold all of that within that spaciousness, right? And in a sense, beginning to make contact with all of those nodes, right? That's right. And, and I was wondering if, like, the plasticity of the brain that we read about is that developing and being cultivated, not just in our zazen, but also in our study of the precepts, cultivating compassion. Because when we're, as as Buddhism is often described, as ceasing from harm, practicing good, and studying and realizing the mind, so we have to be shifting those negative patterns, which are so entrenched, and so habitual, and so easy to fall into. It's like, if we don't do anything, those will just continue. But at the same time, that's not enough. At the same time, we also have to be developing that more affirmative, positive, life-giving, mm-hmm. more enlightened, those qualities, which cultivating compassion, metta, four measurables. And we have to do that over and over and over again. And then, and then when you think about zazen is the calming aspect of developing samadhi, but then there's insight. And that's really mm-hmm. what Buddhism teaches, is the ultimate transformation, because the calming of the system is impermanent, right? That's just dependent upon that's right. how we are in the moment, whereas moment to moment. changing the view yeah. is not just changing the story, it's really breaking free of a story.
2: That's and, right, that's right. And um, yeah, there are people, if you don't have the precepts, this power that comes, from this awareness and the new level of integration that one is able to achieve can also be used for evil. And so I think you need it in the context of, uh, you know, I mean, so much evil has been done in the name of religion. So I think that is a critical aspect of uh, uh, the training.
1: And the sense of what is good or what is moral can't be part of that whole sort of diluted view. That's right. In other words, it actually has to be based in a more objective or you know that whole question of what is how is good versus evil understood in Buddhism and it basically comes down to what is liberating Mm-hmm. On the smallest level, mm-hmm. housing, food, that's right, love, connection, uh-huh. but then also on much deeper,
2: and for all humanity, not just your own tribe.
1: Mm. Why? Why? Um, from from your perspective.
2: Well, you know, I mean, the the brain made some dramatic evolutionary changes at a time that we were small groups few hundred to maybe a thousand. That was the manageable group. And when a group became too large, the the adolescents went out and started a new group. Um, So that was the tribalism that was inherent. And so the protection that
1: happens is... um, Is that because the what we needed to be able to do as human beings had only evolved to be able to hold together a social group up to that level. And beyond that, we didn't have sort of... In
2: that time, I think today, because of our communication Mm -hmm. capabilities and things like that. And we also live in virtual worlds, so to speak, in society. Uh, And so the expansion that we've had is is much greater. Um, meaning, so, uh, meaning what? I mean, what do you make of that? I mean, you know, my son has over a thousand friends on Facebook.
1: <laughs> but what do you, as with all of the work that you've done in terms of the brain, what do you think that? What's the significance of that? Um, well, you know, so the so
2: there is uh, there is a hormone that. Is called the attachment hormone. Mm-hmm. Um, the attachment hormone gives you, you know, and it's released when, um, um, you know, when a baby is born and uh, from, from breastfeeding and is the basis, uh, the chemical basis of the attachment that the mother has with the child. Um, but if the child or the mother, if the child is threatened, that same chemical is the basis of a tremendous aggressive capability that the mother has to protect the child. So inherent in that chemical is both incredible love and attachment, but also a protective instinct Mm -hmm. that can be aggressive. So Mm -hmm. if you expand that to the tribal level, what we have is uh, we have a problem. Uh, And we need the precepts to be able to think of us as a single humanity. There's, there are no geographical boundaries. Uh, you know, one of the astronauts who went up to space said, "You know, <laughs> I don't see any geographical boundaries between one country versus another." Um, there are superficial differences in terms of you know our facial features and things like that. But, um, you know, we're all going to get cooked by climate change.
1: (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) You have a mic. Um. Is there? Can you say any more about um, just to return to that part of the conversation where you were talking about our, our sense of self and how that arises, um, and and I, you know, the example of of um, the the part of the brain that locates the sense of self in the body being turned off. I'm just curious
3: to hear more about where, how, from from. From a scientific perspective, this sense of self, which Buddhism sees as illusory, is um, so convincing. And and what what the scientific evidence is that um, dispels that illusion?
1: Can I just qualify that? Just the illusory, in terms of it existing with any permanence Thank or you. intrinsic nature. Yes, right. That's the really important. Yeah, and that's. Why that teaching of the two truths is so, so important, and that they're not hierarchical, right? They're ultimately one reality. It's just different aspects of one thing. Because without that sense of conventional reality, then we we would be led to dismiss or disregard or not care about this, right? Which is present in other religions, right? This doesn't matter because the judgment is coming, and so whatever happens now, it it's not relevant, you know, it's not important. And so that sense of self arising is normal, right? That's not the issue. It's how we, it's, it's our un- misunderstanding of it, it's, it's how it, it, our attachment to it, um, it's what leads to the tribalism, whether that the tribe is one individual or a group of a thousand. It's the same sense of of identification, and then that necessarily leads, from a Buddhist perspective, to all of the greed, anger, delusion, right? Because it it biologically becomes self-protective, which means it perceives others as threat, right? And there's only one sort of automatic response. And that relates directly to what we're doing on the cushion, because when the sense of self arises, if you think this is a bad thing, then we will react as though it's a bad thing, like it's a threat. I need to extinguish it. I need to cut this. And that's not what Buddhism is teaching.
2: Yeah. I mean, the sense of self is basically the orientation at which you're looking at something, you know, um,
1: and um, and you and you know that you are. That's right. Right. So it's that sort of self-reflective mm-hmm. aspect. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: You know, so so the self is actually many, many layers and the higher you go, the greater the capacity for integration. And so uh, there's a scientist named Julio Tonini who uh, has come up with this uh, concept of consciousness as he calls integrated information theory. And basically he's saying that the more integrated, integration of information you have, you actually have a greater quantity of consciousness. Uh, and then there's another pathway by which he measures quality, and this is mathematical. Uh, and um, uh, and and so uh, so the sense of self, starting from the bottom up, going up. You know, at the top level, what you have is you have all your memories that are your own, um, and your sense of who you are and what you've done, and your you know your your history and your relationship family and all those kind of things. Uh, and then your sense of body, which gives you the sense of agency that this is me moving my hand and in, in you know intentionality and all, all those kind of things. Um, and then emotions that are experienced and then perception, I'm the one who's perceiving this um, uh, and all of that. Um, but even further down, this is again now, um you know, an adaptation from Hofstetter's point of view of self-reference kind of thing. So if you're thinking about, you know, the visual information is coming in and it's broken into different streams and it's processed dif- different ways so that this says, where, where is this, where, you know, in relationship to me and this is, what is this? And then they come back together to be synthesized so that you have one perception of what this object is. So when those streams come back together, there is a recognition that they came from a similar origin to be able to integrate it. So there is a recognition that this was originally me who flowed and came over here. And to me, that is an atom of awareness that comes together because a path diverged and then come back and converged again. Now, inherent in that is a recognition of a self and a recognition that everything else is a non-self. So at a fundamental level, duality is inherent in the processing of information in the mind.
1: Right. That is so fascinating.
3: Can I ask you yeah, a please. question? Yeah. Um, yeah, I do. Sorry. Um, so how how do you understand that from a Dharma perspective? Yeah.
1: yeah. That again, it's not that that things, objects, phenomena, whether they're external objects, whether they're sound objects, taste objects, whether they're internal objects, like a, a self-awareness or an emotion or a thought, have no inherent quality or characteristic. They are empty mm-hmm. of that. That is their emptiness. Therefore, they have no inherent capacity to give us p- pleasure or pain, mm-hmm. right? That is the fundamental delusion. That's the going outside and looking for mm-hmm. Godot. Um and so the sense of self, too, right, is just, I mean, we don't have to be taught to have that self-awareness or self-reflection. It's obviously part of our, our brain, our biology, our survival, but rather it's, it comes back to the meaning. What does this mean? You know, it's like when we look around and we see people who look differently. We, our mind is wired to perceive the differences, but society tells us what those differences mean. That's why how I identify with what I call myself becomes the basis for my aggression, my possessiveness. So in that sense that those streams, in that moment those streams come together and there's a sense that they're coming from me, that perception becomes mine. Right? And so what practice is trying to do is not stop that because that's that's how we live. Right? But rather to illuminate, enlighten, liberate us from the false sense that in that, because of that perception, that, that sense of I am perceiving you or I am perceiving an object, that the false perception that that object exists independently. And when I look at it and it gives me pleasure, then it is giving me pleasure and I want more of it, and so I grasp it. Or if I look at it and I feel irritated, then it is causing anger within me, and I want to destroy it. And so it's it's illuminating, it's it's clarifying in a sense what is real and what is not real from our own experience. Again, not in some objective absolute ontological sense but rather because but the buddha was always clear that the path was about the cause of human suffering and the cessation of human suffering it's always been a human project right and that the world itself is not the problem right and this world itself is not the problem in a sense that's our buddha nature that's why when we don't understand and we go to battle against some aspect of ourself, even those aspects of ourself that have caused a lot of problems. We're just creating more suffering. We're just creating more warfare. And the Buddha was very clear he said if we want to stop suffering we have to stop creating. but we can't just do that with our will. right We have to understand, both understand the basis of it and then practice in accord with that. Over and over and over again. And then the non-duality, the identity of relative and absolute. You know, the five ranks of tongsh, Tongshan, all of these different teachings that are basically saying there is just one unified field, right? There's only one unified reality. There is nothing that is itself in conflict. Conflict only arises in human consciousness. And then, and then we give that meaning and choose our sides and the rest is known
2: already. The way neuroscience would say that would be, there are no paradoxes in nature. All the paradoxes are in our mind.
1: Yeah, Roshi used to say that all the time, <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much Whew. i'm wiped yeah. out i don't know about you
0: <laughs> thanks for listening for more talks teachings videos and more visit zmm.org slash media and while you're there wander over to the programs page for our latest retreat listings we've got in-person and online events scheduled through the rest of the year whether you're game for some traveling or hoping to do some sitting with some real and virtual sangha joining us from different parts of the planet, just go to zmm.org slash all dash programs. Take care.